Good morning. It's kind of a feeble response, folks. Better check your pacemakers this morning and make sure everything's working. By the way, I didn't see notes being passed around. Is that correct? Do we still have the notes in the... uh, Stephen, would you mind checking uh, there in the library? Okay, thank you. Eddie, you're the man. Uh, And uh, they'll be getting passed out to you, Lord willing, in in just a second. We are in uh, Lesson 26 in our study of the, uh, the great book of Hebrews. I have to say that my title was really lackluster. I, I had faith in the family, and even I was embarrassed about that. And, and so then I went with, uh, as the week developed and as I began to better understand the text, I had faith in the failure. But I, I think I know the one I'm sticking with, and that is, what happened to the skeletons in the patriarchal closet? That's the one that I'm going to stick with. That's my story, and I'm sticking with it through the sermon. I'm not going to name the particular professor that I am thinking about, but he is one of the most brilliant men that I had ever uh, met or or uh, sat under. And uh, since these stories are apocryphal, there may be some, some failure in the details, but I'll give you a couple of the stories. One of them, this particular professor uh, was speaking at a church in Houston. He drove to Houston to speak, and he flew home. And his wife, of course, wondered what he was going to do about the car. Um, there was the time when he was uh, working, and he was deep in his thoughts about uh, some great exegetical uh, text, and... and uh, he was going to go over to the neighbors to borrow something, and his wife noticed he'd been missing for a while. He was standing at his own back door, knocking to get out. But, but the one that I, I found the most encouragement from was, was the one uh, where he was in uh, class, and I will name the professor. It was Dr. Unger's class, and, and it was a Hebrew class. And, and uh, so in this class, as in some, Don would know about this, the, the, the professor would call upon students sort of randomly to ask them to read the Hebrew text. Well, this particular professor, uh, the fellow that I'm speaking about, he was really good. And so whenever he was called on, he'd just read the text off, and all the other guys would just look like, oh, get a life. And, and one particular class time, Dr. Unger called on this guy and he asked him to read the text and twice he hesitated. And the guys in the class were just elated and it was like, yes, yes, he's human, you know. And they, and they walked out and, and as they were walking out of the class, this particular individual said to his classmates, man, was I embarrassed. I didn't even have a chance to look at the text last night and I had to sight read it. And, and, and so anyway, my point in all that is that I think often we are more encouraged by other people's failures than we are by their successes. Let me give you an illustration. I think you and I find more encouragement when we read about Peter than when we read about Paul. Because we really, we somehow don't find ourselves able to identify quickly with Paul and his, let's call it perfection, we know better, but in, in how he just seems to always get things right. Peter, the blunderer, the foot-in-the-mouth man, he's my man, and I'm encouraged by him. And, and as I think about the scriptures, 
It seems to me that it's very clear that the Scriptures don't gild the lily, that, that the Scriptures are very honest with us about the failures of great people of faith. Now, sometimes preachers are not good at pointing out what the Scriptures are clear in saying, but the Scriptures tell us about real people. And when we read about them, we can say, that really sounds realistic to me. That, that really fits. And, and when we look in the hall of faith, you know, we start out with guys like Noah and, and Enoch and, and Abel and whatever. But I just want to remind you that we're just starting to warm up in our chapter and we're going to get down to people like Rahab. And, and I don't mean necessarily her profession. I'm talking about the fact that here is a woman who is commended by her faith, but her faith manifested itself by her lying about the people that were staying in her house. And so you have to sort of scratch your head and the ethics boys get all carried away with how you try to rationalize all that. And maybe what it's saying is, you know, here's somebody who's a new believer and maybe their faith isn't perfect. Uh, so to speak, in the sense that they're living their lives in, in flawless perfection. Uh, but the fact is their faith was real and placed in the right person. Gideon, uh, we know about his flaws, but Samson, I mean, man, when he, you know, he gets to Samson and talks about Samson living by faith, you're saying, now, where was that? Uh, you know, and frankly, I'm inclined to say, it's, it's when he's leaning up against those pillars and he's going to go down dying. It looks to me like he catches it right at the end. But my point in all of this is when you look at the Bible and when you look at the book of Hebrews chapter 11, you find that people of faith are flawed people. They are not Mr. or Ms. Perfect. They are people who, who, who put their pants on one leg at a time and, and, and they live like we do and we can somehow identify with them. But it, it raises the question, how do we come to terms with that? And in particular, how do we deal with the fact that when we're, we're talking about Abraham and later we're talking about Moses, that the author of Hebrews is not going to point out their flaws? How is it that we see that? We see it with Gideon and Samson, but what about these great heroes of the faith? I think there's an answer for that, and I think it's one that will greatly encourage us. So here's the way I want to go about it. I want to look at our text and see what it says, first of all, about Noah, and then secondly, what it says about Abraham, and what the author of Hebrews wants us to know about these two men, what the text tells us. Then what I want to do is think about what the text in Hebrews 11 doesn't tell us that anybody who reads their Bible ought to know, and that the reader to the, uh, of Hebrews ought to know these things. What does this text not tell us? And that raises the question, why does it not tell us these things when we know they are true? Why does it speak so highly of these people, and yet we know these are people who have, to some degree, feet of clay? Uh, so that's the kind of tack I'm going to take, and I'll start, if you don't mind, with... Uh, Noah in chapter 11 and verse 7. By faith, Noah, when he was warned about things not yet seen, with reverent regard, constructed an ark for the deliverance of his family. Through faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So let's talk about some background stuff. He starts a 100-year project, roughly speaking, at 500, (laughs) 
500 years old, it says, is when he has his kids. Now, I don't know whether it's just saying he starts at 500 and the kids go from there or whether he had triplets or whatever it was. But when you look at the text, it's clear. Genesis 5.32, he's 500 when he has these boys. That's, I would say, a ripe old age. <laughs> Boy, what a middle-aged crisis to have. At 500, three kids. Can you imagine three teenage boys when you're 500 years old? Woo, what a guy. Uh, anyway, he's 600 when the rains begin. So I extrapolate. He, I, he didn't start the ark, so far as I can tell, before the rains, uh, be, uh, before the sons were born. And no doubt, uh, his sons were helpers in the project. So ballpark you got a hundred year gap uh, there when the text says that man's days will be 120 years i don't read that to say they will live 120 more years and therefore it's a 120 year project i take it that he's saying i'm limiting man's lifespan to 120 years you can read that as you want whether it's 100 years 120 years i got to tell you folks if you looked at that boat while it was being built you'd say whew you know i mean what a job what a Think about that. A project that goes on for a hundred years, 750 feet long. Wow. I, I just can't even fathom what that must have been like. He lives to the age of 950, 350 years after uh, the, the rains began and the flood. Uh, and all of that, 950 years, are summed up by the author of Hebrews in one verse. One verse covers 950 years. Whew, that's moving right along. I wish I could do better at that, but I don't seem to be able to manage. Now, what does the author say about, about Noah's faith? Well, if you look, it says, God warned Noah of things that are unseen. In other words, God said to Noah that these things were going to come. Now, that very much fits with what we've read in the definition of faith, that faith is the, the uh, assurance of things hoped for and the convictions of, uh, of conviction of things that are not seen. So we're obviously in the realm of faith. That's what the author is trying to tell us. But what would those things be that are unseen? Well, I would suggest to you that it, it depending on how you understand Genesis and, and, and the Genesis flood and so on, it may very well be that they had never yet seen rain. If they've never seen rain, then you can imagine God saying, I'm going to send rain and it's going to wash all this away. And you're saying, And I've never seen that before. Well, that would take faith. Now, I take it they had not seen a flood, uh, even if they had seen rain. They had not seen floods. So now you're looking at something like that. But in the general sense, I think I would go one step further and say they have never seen worldwide judgment. They have not seen judgment. And I was thinking about that text in 2 Peter chapter 3, where it says, In the last days, men are going to rise up that are scoffers. And they say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the beginning of time, you know, we, nothing has changed. And, and Peter says, oh, yes, it has. And he goes back and starts at the flood and says, there was a big change. But what they're saying is, it was so long ago and so far away, it doesn't seem like anything's going to happen. But when you go back to Genesis chapter 6, it never had happened before. I think that's the point. Judgment had never come upon men before. And so when when Noah is talking about the judgment to come, they have absolutely no experience. So the point is, these things about which God has informed Noah 
are things which have not been seen before, and therefore they are things which require uh, one to act in faith. God commanded Noah to build the ark to rescue his family. Now, I, I left that last part in there. He did not command him to have an expansion unit in the ark, so in case a, a, a number of the people of his day decided to join in, that, that, that they could be on the boat as well. There were no rooms for anybody else but his family, so far as I understand the text. And it's clear, nobody else got into the boat. Eight people, Noah, his wife, three sons, and their wives. Eight people got in the boat. Eight people were saved. But uh, God commanded him to build the ark for the rescue of himself and his family, and, and he obeyed. So by faith, he built the ark, and by so doing, he condemned the world. Now, I think we are inclined to say that he preached the gospel, and there's a, there's a, there's a sense in which that may be true. But we need to understand, when we come to this point in Genesis, it is saying that things are so bad, it's so corrupt, and however you understand the sons of God being joined with the daughters of men and all of that stuff, God is saying it's time to wipe this thing clean. And that included not only men, but animals, all animal life. If that's the case, then things are really bad. And what God is not saying is this is a time for evangelism. He is saying, I believe, very much like he said to Isaiah when Isaiah was sent out in Isaiah chapter 6. Your ministry is not to turn people's hearts to me. Your ministry is to proclaim the truth and harden their hearts because these people are now ripe for judgment and that's what's coming on. So for a hundred years or so, depending on, again, the exact construction time, the people have this token of coming judgment. Not one person believes or uh, repents and joins in uh, to the salvation that is in the ark. Now, that's the story. And it says because of his faith, his obedience in, in, in constructing the ark, God commends him as being righteous. He enters into those who are declared just by faith. So I now go to what else do we know? In other words, if you want to know the truth, what I'm really saying is, okay, that really sounds good. One verse covers 950 years. Are there any skeletons in Noah's closet? Well, I think we can look and, and we at least see some uh, other factors that may be helpful. Noah's construction takes 100 years. Not one person repented. I got to say, that's actually a plus in his side. If you think about the perseverance of the saints and you, and you read, for instance, in Hebrews chapter 10 where it talks about not forsaking the assembly of yourselves together, then it's very clear that one of the critical elements in persevering is that we have other believers around us who encourage us in our faith. But what I'm trying to suggest to you is he didn't. He did not have uh, people coming forward at his invitation, you know, between putting one beam up and another. And, and he's saying, wow, this is good. Now we've got a community of people to help build this ark. He's alone for 100 years. And I'm inclined to suggest that he is alone in the faith, perhaps including his family. Now, uh, you gotta, you're going to have to bear with me on this. And, and it's, it's somewhat hypothetical, but... If you look in chapter 6, verses 14 and 19, when God gives the command, it's singular, not plural. 
He's saying to, to Noah, you do this. But the, the interesting text for me is the text that you find in Genesis chapter 7, verse 1. And it depends on the translation you have as to how they deal with that. But he says this, The Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, for I consider you singular. You singular. I consider you, and many texts read, I consider you alone to be godly in this generation. Now, that is an interesting thing. Is it actually possible that Noah believed and his family did not? Now, when you think about Job, that righteous man, and you think about his wife, Mrs. Job, who's saying, why don't you just curse God and die? Can you imagine what Mrs. Noah said 50 years in as she's looking at him work on this boat? Well, I got to go work on the boat again. How many times did she say to him, for goodness sakes, man, give it up. I mean, I know that every man wants a boat, but get over it. You know, I mean, it's, it's just, it, anyway. Now, if you look at this text in Ezekiel 14, then it, it raises the question even more. And, and, and I'll let it lie with this. Listen to what it says. Ezekiel 14, verse 13. Son of man, suppose a country sins against me by being unfaithful, and I stretch out my hand against it, cut off its bread supply, cause famine to come on it, and kill both people and animals. Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, as far as I know, didn't have children, and Job, were in it, they would only save their own lives by their righteousness. Their righteousness will spare them. But he says, suppose that I were to send... Uh, where did I lose my place here? Um, verse 15. Suppose I were to send wild animals even through the land and kill its children, leaving it desolate without travelers due to wild animals. Even if these three men were in it, as I surely live, declares the sovereign Lord, they could not save their own sons or daughters. They would only save their own lives. Now, that's a strange passage, I admit. But the inference seems to be here is Noah, who God declares to be righteous alone. And it appears that it is through him, and obviously you got to have, when you read the rest of it, you, know, you got two of this animal and two of that. you got to have two humans, or you're not going to continue the human race. So, so there's that element. But it seems to me that this text at least suggests that it may have been Noah's righteousness alone that was the cause for sparing of his family. And, and so all I'm doing is just putting that out there. But I'm saying at, at best, at best, it's Noah and his family. At worst, it's Noah alone who stands alone, obeys God for a hundred years, building this ark by which his family will be spared. That to me is an amazing thing. But I have to say, I've been looking for skeletons. And so we don't have to go too far in Genesis chapter nine to find one. You remember that's the text where, where after the flood is over and Noah plants a vineyard and he, and he <laughs> fixes himself a little wine and he gets drunk and he's found by one of his sons uh, to be naked in his tent. And, and you remember that the two other brothers go in literally backwards so that they will not see with this cover and they cover their father's nakedness. Now, there's a lot of speculation about all that, but I think what you would say is this. It was not the high point of Noah's life. Would you all agree with me on that point? 
we don't understand whatever is going on there. We know, you know, you didn't have family pictures and family album that said, gee, look at Noah here. It was not one of those kind of times. And my point is, even Noah, as great as he was, was not a perfect man. And, and uh, that's just the beginning. We're warming up for Abram, uh, or Abraham, as you'll see here in a second. So let's go to Abraham in, uh, in uh, chapter uh, 8. Uh, chapter 11, verse 8 and following. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place he would later receive as an inheritance. And he went out without understanding where he was going. In other words, unseen, so to speak. By faith, he lived as a foreigner in the promised land as though it were a foreign country, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, who were fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with firm foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even though Sarah herself was barren and he was too old, he received the ability to procreate because he regarded the one who had given the promise to be trustworthy. So, in fact, children were fathered by one man, and this one as good as dead, like the number of the stars of the sky and like the innumerable grains of sand on the seashore, he brought forth this child And those descendants came forth in fulfillment of God's promise. So what does the author tell us? He tells us that Abraham obeyed God by faith, going to an unnamed, and let's just say for now, unseen country. He left not knowing where he was going. That's the first step. Secondly, he lived in the land that God promised him as a sojourner without possessing it. So all of his life, in a sense, he rented. You know, he pitched, we would say, he, he bought a trailer and, 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 he, and he, you know, he rented a spot, but he didn't own the place all of his life. And not only that, his sons after him did not possess it. We know that's going to come to pass after Israel is in bondage and they come out and they go into the land of promise. But that's years down the line. Abraham's hope, uh, we are told, is that he was looking for a city whose architect and builder was God with firm foundations. <laughs> he must have known about Texas soil there. But the, the point is, he has a hope that is not an earthly hope. That fits very well with verses 13 through 16 that are going to tell us that all these men died in faith without receiving the promise because they were looking for a city that wasn't an earthly city, but a heavenly city. His hope was heaven. And there again, we see him focused on the unseen rather than on the seen. And then he says, finally, that Abraham and Sarah, though they were as good as dead when it came to bearing children, they believed God, they were able to conceive and to have a child. And from that child, of course, the promises of God for a great nation coming forth from him were fulfilled. Now, that's the news. That's the story that our author gives us. So the question now is, what's the rest of the story? What's the rest of the news that is clearly laid out in the pages of Scripture? This is not speculative, as something I've just said about Noah before. This is clear stuff about what we know about Abraham and his faith. First of all, Abraham was called while he was in Ur and told to leave that place and his relatives. Is that not right? 
He was called in Mesopotamia. If you look with me at uh, Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 7, Nehemiah says, You are Lord God, you are the Lord God who chose Abraham and brought him forth from Ur of the Chaldeans. Okay? Acts chapter 7, Stephen, as he recounts Israel's history, says in verse 1, the high priest says, are these things true? And Stephen now replies in verse 2, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our forefather Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he settled in Haran. And he said to him, go out from your country and from your relatives and come to the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the country of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After his father died, God made him move to this country where you now live. Okay, so let's talk about that for a moment. Abraham obeyed God by leaving his homeland and his relatives. That's what the story tells us, right? Now, when we read in the text, we know that he was called while he was in Ur. But when we look at Genesis chapter 11, we have a somewhat different version of that. All of what was said was true. What we don't see is the flaws, uh, so to speak. Look at verse 27 of Hebrews, uh, of Genesis chapter 11. This is the account of Terah, Abraham's father. Now look at verse 31. Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and with them he set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. And when they came to Haran, they settled there. Now, what I see that sort of catches my attention in this account is it looks like Terah's leading more than Abraham, does it not? And it's Terah who takes relatives with him. And they don't get all the way to Canaan. They get so far as Haran and they stop. Now, that to me doesn't quite come across. In other words, there are details there that when I look at the short version that the author of Hebrews gives, God told him to leave his country and go and end. We would say, I would say, eventually he did. (laughs) But the point is that it wasn't all Abraham's doing. He didn't leave his relatives all behind. And we know what a pain lot was in, in that scenario. And it wasn't until God gave a second call that Abraham finally ends up in the promised land. So when we come to Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, that is a call that is described, that is given to Abraham in Haran, not Ur. It is given to him in Haran. And it's as though God is saying to him, all right, Abraham, you got part way, buddy, but you're not there yet. So he needs to repeat the command and repeat the promises. And, and so all I'm saying is it wasn't this quick, instant obedience that we wish we were reading about in one sense. It, it was, it was a, a, a little bit faltering and the, uh, the difficulties don't end quite yet. We also recognize that with respect to the bearing of a child, uh, Abraham's performance, shall we say, was not altogether flawless. Uh, when you, when you look at, uh, 
the promise of the offspring that is going to come from him, we recognize by reading in Genesis, and this is Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 20, but we realize that this woman who is going to be the mother of this promised child is the one he passes off as his sister, a half-truth, his half-sister. He passes her off as his sister and puts her in bed, so to speak, literally, with Pharaoh in Genesis 12 and Abimelech in Genesis chapter 20. And if that isn't bad enough, he says to Abimelech, this is what we do everywhere we go. So it's not just two flaws. He's got a foreign policy failure, folks, that is not good. And and all I'm saying to you is, he does eventually trust God. I, I'm just trying to show you there are some chuck holes in the road of faith that, that sometimes we're inclined to, to uh, overlook. And then when you, when you see the uh, issue of, of uh, Sarah and not being able to bear a child, you have to go to Genesis chapter 16. Now it's Sarah who says to him, look, man, give it up. <laughs> It is not going to happen. Uh, here's my uh, my maiden Hagar that we picked up in Egypt. Why don't you just get an offspring through her? Once again, that only brought trouble. And I think you would have to agree with me that that wouldn't be one of the glorious moments in the hall of faith. No wonder he doesn't hang it here because it's not a great moment of faith for Abraham or for Sarah. So what are we to do with this? We have to say, there are skeletons in the patriarchal closet. There are things that we read, especially about Abraham, and we're going to read them about Moses, and we're going to know they're true about others who come later. There are skeletons in that closet that are not wonderful, beautiful, happily ever after instances of faith, and they're just there. The question is, why doesn't the writer of the Hebrews tell us so? Why does he gloss over those in a way that, that you would think that everything was a proverbial bed of roses? Ah, and that's where we really get, I think, to the heart of, of all that this text is about. What is the author's purpose? I have to admit to you that early in the week I was saying to myself, okay, how, how am I gonna, how am I gonna apply this? And so I was thinking about ways in which you know, we could say, uh, uh, imitate his faith. And, and I could say to you, suppose that God were to take your job away from you here and he was to say to you that you're to move to Cincinnati or you're to move to some other place. Are you willing by faith to do what God leads you to do? If, if some missionary, uh, some seminary student uh, comes through and, and, and the Lord says, you go to this place far away from your relatives and your family, are you willing to do that? And all of a sudden I realized that's not really the author's purpose. This is not a, a, a citing of examples so that we can do what they did in kind. It says in verse 2, after he defines faith as the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things that are not seen, he says, but by this the men of old gained approval. That is what he is saying. He is saying men were approved and justified by God because of faith, period. Period. He is not saying, therefore, do what Abraham did, do what Moses did. He is saying, if you mean that by do these acts, he is saying, 
Abraham was saved by faith. Believe like Abraham did. Remember, that's what Galatians says. We who believe are Abraham's descendants. So we are to imitate their faith, not to take their actions as a pattern which we now dutifully carry out so that we can do the right thing. He is saying, believe. John chapter 6 that was referred to this morning. What work shall we do? That we may do the work of God. And Jesus says, don't do any works. Believe. That's what this text is about. These instances of faith are a challenge to us to believe. To believe God. Will actions come of that? Yes. But it starts with belief. It's all about faith. It's not about our performance and our works. Let me take you another step further to place it in the context of all of Hebrews. If you look at at Hebrews, you've got two chapters minus, because it's not all there, especially at the end of of, uh, uh, chapter 2. But but when you look at at chapters 3 and 4, I guess I should have said the end of chapter 4. When you look at chapters 1 and 2, you have the perfections of Christ. When you look at chapters 3 and 4, it's looking at Israel who doesn't enter into rest, the failure of men. But you have to say, eight out of ten chapters are about the perfection of Christ. Two minus chapters, a little less than two, are about the fallibility of men. Where does the emphasis fall? Not on how good men are and you ought to be like them. It's on how sufficient Christ is. It's His sacrifice that paid for our sins once for all. It is His priestly ministry at the right hand of the Father where He now, having identified with us, sits at the Father's right hand. We have a sympathetic high priest, one that we can go to for mercy and grace in time of need. He saved us. He sustains us. This is not some change that says, now get out there and get to work. And do it like Abraham did. And do it like them. If we did it like Abraham did it, we would mess up like Abraham did it. The point is not that Abraham messed up. Because it wasn't his messing up that lost him anything. It was his belief that saved him. So when you look at these great heroes of faith, you don't look at the the flaws that are there in the picture. What you say is... By God's grace, it was their faith that saved them. Did he mess up? You bet! Will we mess up? You got it. We will. It's whether or not Christ is sufficient. Is his sacrifice enough? It's not our performance. It's his perfection, not ours. That's what this text is about. And and the reason why the author purposely leaves out men's failings is not that he hopes we won't see them. This is the elephant in the room. He knows we will see them and he's saying to us, you ought to ask me, why didn't I mention how Abraham bungled? And his answer would be, because it was Christ's sufficiency that saved him. It was faith that saved him. Did his faith fail from time to time? Yes. He faltered in his faith. But he persisted. In his life, if you look at all of his life, he persisted in his trust of God. How long did it take Abraham to get that child? You know, it was years. And it was after that that Abraham came to the point in Genesis 22 where he was willing to sacrifice that child because he had come to the point where his trust in God had grown to where he could commit that child to him. God wasn't any better 
But his faith in God was deeper and richer, and now he could do greater acts of faith because of what he understood about God. That's why Hebrews is here, to tell us the greatness of Jesus Christ, the greatness of his sacrifice, the nearness that he has to us, where we can approach in our time of need. That is the basis for our perseverance. Folks, if you were a legalist, what a miserable thing it would be. I mean, you're always looking and saying, and, and I, I, I really, I'm sorry for Arminians because, you know, can you imagine going through your life saying, oh my goodness, did I think a wrong thought? Am I lost? Did I do the wrong thing? Am I lost? If your eternal security is based on your performance, give it up. Just give it up and quit early. The only thing that encourages us to persevere is the fact it is his faithfulness, his work, not ours. Now, does that mean we go out and live sloppy lives? The warnings of Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10 say, I wouldn't go down that trail. If you willfully persist in sin saying he's got to cover it, you miss the point about grace. You miss the point about the sufficiency of Christ's work. But when we fail, we have an advocate with the Father. We have a great high priest. His atonement was a sacrifice that was once for all. We are covered by his work. Now, when you think about the readers of this epistle, here are people who are thinking about falling back into Judaism. And we all, I think, have a tendency to fall back into wherever we've come from. But think about it. What will law do for you? The law says, and, 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 and the scriptures in the New Testament make it clear, if we fail at one point of the law, what happens? We've lost it all. We've lost it all. The law requires perfection. Well, how many people would be in the hall of faith if they were saved under the law? Not one. Not one. Only our Lord Jesus was perfect. So to go back under the law is to leave a system that says you can be weak at times in your life. You can stumble on the path at times in your life. It is His sufficiency that keeps you going. It is He on whom you can rely and in Him you can persevere. But if you go back to the system of law and the old covenant, folks, you are into a system that says you mess up, you're finished. What a terrible thing. And so when he goes through all of these Old Testament saints, he says, look, look at them. You read what I say, but you notice God sees, in a sense, what the writer is saying is, here's what God sees when he looks at Abraham. You know, Abraham doesn't stand before him and God says, hmm, you know about this Hagar thing? Uh, you know, Abraham, we got to talk about that. God looks at Abraham and said, you trusted me. And I declare you righteous on the basis of faith alone because my son paid the price. That's what it's about. And so let me just say, you can have Hebrews 11 or you can have uh, Revelation 20. <laughs> Take your pick. You can have a system that is based on the goodness and the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice and that doesn't require your perfection to last for eternity. Or you can have a system where you say, no, I'd rather do it myself, and you'll stand before God, and all of your works will be brought up, and God will say, you shouldn't have trusted that. You shouldn't have trusted that. So I would say this. What a beautiful gospel we have. 
What, 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 you know, if you think about it, the self-righteous people, they didn't seek out Jesus because they were going to get there on their own. They thought. It was the sinners who were drawn to Jesus. And why was that? Because somehow they sensed it was about him, not about them. It was about trusting in him, not about doing better and reforming. And so sinners were drawn to him. And that's what Hebrews is about. It says, draw near to him. He is one who has taken humanity upon himself. He is one who has experienced the weaknesses that you have. Only he prevailed. He's paid for those sins. He is there to, to give you help in your time of need. Come to him. For, for lost sinners who are hopeless and helpless, nothing is more beautiful than the gospel of Jesus Christ because it doesn't require our performance to get to heaven. And, and I would say for, for believers in him, there's no better basis for perseverance than realizing it is faith in him He is the one who is our certainty. He is our security. He is our forgiveness. He is our adequacy. He is our helper in time of need. That's why we persevere. Because it is certain. Because it rests in Him, not with us. Is that not great news? Doesn't that make Hebrews 11 one of the most beautiful chapters in the Bible? Look, the author says, look, do you think I didn't know about Abraham and these things? Do you think I didn't know about Moses and how he goofed up? He didn't get to the land either. He says, no. When it comes to the bottom line, the question is, do you trust Jesus? That's what it's about. If you trust him, you're safe, you're secure, you're forgiven. And this isn't a list of things that everybody ought to go out and do so they can feel better or feel more righteous. They ought to look at this and say, thank God he left all that junk out of this chapter because it's never going to come up again for those who are children of his. Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for the great men and women of faith. We thank you most of all that our salvation as theirs is rooted in the person and the perfection and the work of our Lord Jesus. If there's anybody here who's never trusted in him, help them to forsake all of their futile efforts at trying to please you and to recognize that what pleases you is trusting Jesus. Help us who have known you for a long time to grow as Abraham did to the point where our faith will be stronger. But help us to cling to the Lord Jesus. Help us to persevere in faith. Help us to cling to Jesus, for he is our security. In Jesus' name, amen.